Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Today, we pay tribute to the famous rogue and former Pogue, Shane McGowan. The Celtic punk band rose to prominence in the 80s with hits such as Fairytale of New York and Dirty Old Town. McGowan passed away today at the age of 65. We look back at his often chaotic but always cherished legacy. It was just two years ago that New Zealand was being applauded for announcing the toughest smoking restriction rules in the world, the major one being a generational ban on smoking that would have prevented anyone born after 2008 from ever legally buying cigarettes. It was about to come into effect, but the new coalition government that took over from the former uh, Jacinta Ardern government, although she stepped down, is reversing course. Why and what impact could it have on other jurisdictions such as Canada looking at similar restrictions? What is wrong with Elon Musk? It's a question that's coming up again after the world's richest man unleashed on companies that have stopped advertising or at least paused advertising on the social media platform X, formerly known as Twitter, but of course Musk now famously owns, telling all of them to F off during a uh, appearance yesterday in New York City. So we ask a former CEO at Harvard Business School executive fellow for his take on what's going on and what kind of impact it could have on Musk in the long term. But first, a growing number of communities across North America are looking at banning or at least limiting right turns on red lights. But is there enough data out there for communities to make an informed decision? The answer may surprise you. This is a conversation that's been going on across the country and increasingly in many cities across North America right now. In an effort to prevent pedestrian and cyclist deaths, more and more North American cities are contemplating imitating Montreal, my hometown, by banning drivers from turning red on turning right on red lights. Now, the Montreal's never had it, so it's a bit of a difference. I was there when they brought in right on red for places off the island of Montreal, which they did. But on the island of Montreal, I don't know if you've been there, I don't know if you've driven there. There was always this assumption because it wasn't part of the traditions of the city that that drivers there, because they're so aggressive, were going to become incredibly dangerous if you let them turn right on red. So uh, it's never been allowed, at least not in my lifetime, on the island of Montreal. Is Does it make sense to do it elsewhere? Well, other cities are looking at it. New York City is the only major American city to ban them. That has a lot to do just with traffic flow and so on, but also to protect Protect, protect, protect pedestrians, in other words. Um, the AP reported this month, though, that a number of cities have either voted to restrict the maneuver or are debating doing so, including Washington, D.C., Chicago, Ann Arbor, Michigan, where the University of Michigan is. And again, there are conversations about this happening here at home. Wayne Mason is a city councillor in Halifax, for example. My daughter's in school in Montreal, uh, and they have no right turn on red, and I think it's much safer for pedestrians in urban areas. I'm not convinced we need it everywhere, and I don't think it would be appropriate to do it just for transit. Uh, but I do think, uh, you know, the peninsula, downtown Dartmouth, uh, and Main Street's banding right turns on red would be much safer. Right. So people are looking at this. Now, Toronto debated imposing a blanket ban a while back as part of its Vision Zero strategy, uh, which aims to eliminate pedestrian and cyclist deaths, but instead opted to implement the measure only at selected intersections, which kind of makes sense to me, right? But here's the problem. It, anecdotally, it makes sense that right on red would create possibilities for conflicts between pedestrians, cyclists, 
and drivers. The issue is there isn't that much data out there on it. So we don't really know. I mean, it would make sense in a big city, for instance, to look at the most dangerous intersections, as they often do, and prohibit it, prohibit it there, right? I mean, that goes on in a lot of cities, including where I am. But we actually don't really know, despite decades of debate, even traffic safety advocates who favor the ban say there's a lack of reliable data proving the measure actually does what it's hoped to do. Uh, Pamela, Pamela Fuseli is president and CEO of Parachute Canada, an injury prevention group, and she joins me now. Pamela, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Ben. This one has been a, um, a hot topic again. I guess a lot of what's happened is a lot of American cities are starting to look at this because they've had a big jump in pedestrian deaths. And obviously, Canadian cities look across the border and start to ask some of the same questions. Uh, yes, it is a, an emerging issue and more and more talked about. I mean, we, we do have some cities in Canada that have this already. Uh, so it isn't it isn't new, uh, but it certainly is a topic that is um, on the top of mind for a lot of people. Yeah, I was mentioning I grew up in Montreal, of course, and for the longest time in in, in and around Montreal, you couldn't turn right on, on red anywhere. And then uh, about 20 years ago, I think it was, they they started to allow for right on red off the island of Montreal, but on the island itself, they didn't. And there were a lot of different reasons for that. Uh, but tr tr traditionally across the country, it's been no problem at all in most jurisdictions. Yeah, and there's been a couple of different approaches. As you said, whether they do uh, take the approach of a ban, just a blanket ban across the city like they do in Montreal, or whether they take an approach uh, like in uh, Edmonton, where they they look at particular intersections and restrict right turns on red at those intersections where they've noticed and documented, you know, more crashes, more um, points of of contact between uh, pedestrian cyclists and, and motor vehicles. What is the position? What is the organization's position on this? Well, I, I mean, right now we still don't have definitive research or evidence. We know anecdotally and on in certain smaller studies that there is a benefit to right turns on reds um, and as an effective way to you know cut down on the number of collisions and and in particular serious injuries and deaths to those who are road users that may be more vulnerable than those you know, riding around in a car. Uh, so we want to make the road safer for everyone who's using the, the roadway. And there are a number of tools in the toolbox, and this is one of them. Right. I, I gather the issue here, and it is kind of surprising considering how common it is, uh, that the issue here is that we just don't have enough data on mm -hmm. the safety issues surrounding turning right on red. I mean, anecdotally, I think any pedestrian understands that it makes crossing the street a little bit more complicated. But then again, we don't actually know how dangerous it is in the long run. Yeah, and that's that's something that we are, you know, looking to to the research uh, community to take a look at uh, and provide more high quality evidence. Um, so, you know, there are some, as I said, some smaller studies that uh, look at different jurisdictions that have done this, um, and they and then they measure different things. So some of them um, measure the reduction in conflicts and collisions versus the actual numbers of injuries and deaths from that. So, you know, it, it, it really it does depend on what has happened in that jurisdiction and what approach they've taken um, in terms of their intervention, as well as how they've measured it. Right. Because a lot of factors go into a pedestrian, sadly, a lot of factors go into a pedestrian fatality. Sometimes it's hard to uh, pick out just one, right? 
Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, what was the weather like? What, um, you know, what distraction what, had, did the driver have? Like there's all kinds of, uh, of reasons why, but they, we know from the approach of vision zero of complete streets or a safe systems approach is that we can create an environment that is safer for everyone. Humans are going to make mistakes and to rely on every human, whether they're in a car or on the road to make, you know, no mistakes and do the right thing every single time, you know, just isn't reality. And we've seen that in other areas of, in, of injury reduction. When we look at the systems level, if we can take the, um, the hazard or the risk out of that at that level, we see a much bigger uh, and positive outcome. Right. And what would make the most sense, I would think, is if you could identify, now this goes beyond even just research into the safety of turning right on red, but if you could identify intersections where there are problems, and I, I often think of sort of busy downtown intersections, right? Mm -hmm. or, or, or intersections around schools, places where there's a lot of pedestrian traffic, it clearly makes sense for traffic in areas where there are almost nobody walking, where there's no pedestrians. And that was the case in Montreal off island, certainly. Um, but it would make sense, I would imagine, to start to pinpoint intersections where this has become a problem. Yes, uh, to look at, you know, where are the, you know, the researchers and traffic um, engineers call them conflicts, where are those points of conflict where a car and a pedestrian or a car and a cyclist or a cyclist and a pedestrian are coming together. So you can see that very well in intersections in North America, those are the points where you get the most of those of those uh, potential for collisions. So taking a look at, you know, where are you seeing the highest number of collisions, and even near misses, and that's harder to measure of where a collision or, or uh, an injury doesn't happen, but it nearly happens, or it could have happened if you know, one or another thing hadn't um, gone right. So, you know, taking a look at, you know, where are those spaces and places um, where this might be an appropriate intervention? The other stream of, uh, you know, thought is that if you put a blanket ban in, then everybody knows what they do at every intersection at any time. They don't have to think about it. They don't have to process, you know, is is that um, notification turned on on that intersection at this time? Or this, does this intersection have a right turn on red and the next one doesn't? Um, so there are two, two kind of schools of thoughts. And that's another area where we need to understand that more. Which one is a better approach? Uh, or is there um, a way to assess which is the better approach in which area? We don't have enough data, though, I guess. And, and there, therein lies the issue for, for an organization such as yours, is you actually need to have reliable data to, to take a firm stance on something like this. Yeah. And I mean, we can take the precautionary approach, which from a public health perspective, despite the data gap, um, you know, that would be the safest if we ban right turns on red. I mean, if we just sort of wanted to blanket um, an approach. So... There, there is that kind of uh, that kind of thinking, um, but when we look at you know what drives our decision to make recommendations, we are looking for the best evidence that we have. At this point, we have some evidence that it is effective, and they are, but they are small studies, and they're they're pointing us in that direction. We don't have the type of 
evidence that we have, say, around speed reduction. We have lots of evidence around the role that speed plays in collisions and uh, serious injury and death. So this is a this is something that needs some more ex exploration. Um, I think in jurisdictions that are looking at the data and they have you know the proverbial hotspots of where uh, these issues are being um, seen because of right turns on reds. And I know uh, a number of years ago, you know, Toronto Public Health was able to actually identify the number of pedestrian injuries and fatalities over a period of time that were due to right turns on reds. So then you know, okay, well, if this is the, if this is what is causing the the injury or issue, then the solution is to, to take that out of the equation. So to not allow right turns on reds. And you've seen that in the Toronto area, you know, some, some intersections, you're not allowed to do that. Uh, so, it, you know, it's still the jury's out in, in terms of the overwhelming evidence, but certainly we have indications and expert opinion that this is, you know, this is an effective intervention. I think the question is, do you put it as a blanket ban across all areas of a jurisdiction or do you select particular intersections? I suppose that whenever we start having these conversations again, and, and it seems to be odd the way that comes and goes and waves, but it is, does give us an opportunity to talk about some of these issues more broadly. It's certainly for an organization such as yours, talking about right on red allows you to talk about other things as well when it comes mm -hmm. to road safety, such as speed. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, there's no one magic solution to reducing traffic fatalities and serious injuries there's a whole toolbox that we can use. And again, you have to look at the design of the intersection or the environment um, and look at, you know, what are the issues, where are the injuries occurring, and then what is the evidence to support that? Uh, so that does give us a good direction. Unfortunately, it doesn't give us that one magic solution that would just solve all of our problems, which I wish that I could give you. <laughs> indeed, indeed. And enforcement's always an issue as well, right? I mean, if you if you put in more rules and you need someone to enforce them, that's not always an easy task either, if I remember correctly, from Montreal as well. That was one of You're the yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You're absolutely right. Ed educating the public and the users of the roadway is one is also one. But you're absolutely right. If you don't expect to be caught um, or you know have a penalty for an action that is illegal, you know we're going to see those uh, still happen. And so you're right. Enforcement is a is a very important component uh, of the recipe for um, for reducing road fatalities. Right. And I should point out that Montreal's example was the fact that they were trying to change the rule to make red on, right on red uh, per permitted, which it hadn't been. So I think if you had a jurisdiction which didn't have it, you'd be reluctant to make an argument to bring it in, right? I think that's what Montreal found itself in. Um, you know, they, they hadn't had it for a long time. So there weren't very many good reasons to allow <laughs> for it, right? But to take it away would need some sort of proof. I guess we're still waiting to see what exactly mm -hmm. that proof would look like. Pamela, uh, thank you so much. Thanks, Ben, for talking about this issue. What is wrong with Elon Musk? I don't get it. I mean, here's someone, he's the richest man on the planet. Almost everything he's ever touched other than Twitter has done pretty well for him. And yet he seems so... Uh, he seems so angry all the time, and I just don't understand it. I mean, put your Elon, put your feet up and put down the phone. I mean, that's that would be the only advice uh, that I could give. I'm certainly no uh, no genius. I couldn't have created Tesla or any of those things. But I would say to Elon Musk, put up your feet 
and put down the phone for now because he is getting into all kinds of trouble. So the latest is that a whole bunch of advertisers have left X, which used to be known as Twitter, um, basically because of a bunch of, of anti-Semitic conspiracy theory tweets. I mean, his Twitter X has become a bit of a bit of a cesspool in the last six months or so, including from Musk himself, um, you know, just posting all kinds of really shady, awful stuff, um, which I mean, you know, th that's his, that's his prerogative, but there are consequences, right? So yesterday he's asked this, asked about this at, uh, the New York times deal book summit. And yeah, his response to, to what he thought of advertisers abandoning the platform because they weren't comfortable with some of the awfulness that's being, that they find themselves next to, here's what he had to say. Uh, don't advertise. You don't want them to advertise? No. What do you mean? If, if somebody's going to try to blackmail me with advertising, blackmail me with money, go f yourself. But go f yourself. <laughs> is that clear? Uh, I hope it is. Don't forget, this isn't someone who didn't get the movie ticket they wanted. This is the world's richest man talking about a, a multi-billion dollar investment that he's made. Uh, and this is, this is what he thinks. That was his message uh, to advertisers who, who've dumped him, <laughs> who've dumped the platform at least. Uh, again, some firms have paused their advertising on, the, on X over concerns about anti-Semitism, including a post from Elon Musk himself. He apologized for that post, by the way, saying it might be the dumbest thing he had ever shared online. Um, it's going to be a really difficult after yesterday, I think, to get those advertisers to come back. Here's what ABC's Alexis Christophorus has to say about it. I think it's going to be tough for X, formerly known as Twitter, uh, to get that money back, to get those advertisers to come on board. He admitted that if there was a massive advertising boycott, it would ruin the company. He said if that were to happen, users would know it wasn't because of him, but it was because of the advertisers. And when asked if he would continue to fund X, he basically said no, he would not be there to continue to funnel money into a losing proposition. ABC's Alexis Christophorus there. So what to make of all of this? Again, since his takeover of Twitter uh, last year, a little more than a year ago now, Musk has come under a lot of scrutiny and criticism for moves, including getting rid of all the quality control around hate speech on the platform. There's been an exodus of advertisers. He's watched the new company's revenues drop by 50%. American user base is down nearly 20%. So I just don't get it. Why is it that you would buy this platform, uh, even though we tried to get out of it at one point? Why would you buy this platform then proceed to kind of decimate it, unless you were doing it on purpose. And why the anger? I mean, again, he's the richest man on the planet. Like, why do you have to behave as if you just escaped some frat party? I really don't get it. So I thought I'd ask someone who might know. Bill George is an executive fellow at Harvard University. And he's author of True North, the Emerging Leader Edition, and another book called Authentic Leadership. Bill, thank you so much. Thank you, Ben. I'm delighted to be on your show. I, it, you know, I, from your perspective, I'm really interested because watching the head of many companies sit there and sort of just rant to some extent was, was I found incredibly shocking. Just, I think, for the layperson, you're like, what is going on with Elon Musk? What's your sense? of what did you make of, of, of this rant he went on yesterday? Well, I was shocked by it, to tell you the truth. Now, he later in the interview, he admits that the worst uh, mistake he ever made was posting the... Uh, the uh, uh, anti-Semitic comment about Jewish people hating white people. Of course, I thought Jewish people were white, but most of them are at least yeah. European. But anyway, uh, 
I would say this is the second worst comment he ever had when he uh, used the F word to attack his advertisers, as if they're responsible for the success of Twitter. Look, they're, they're, they vote with their feet, just like investors do, and they're only going to put their money into something that they think speaks to the character they want to come across for their company. So I don't care whether it's Coca-Cola or IBM or Disney, they're going to only be on sites that can enhance their own brands and their own customers. And and that question was put to him. I mean, you know, the, the moderator here, the interviewer, uh, Ross was Ross Sorkin is is a very qualified guy, and he essentially said that to him. He said, "Well, what's your business model then?" And I guess his business model is, "I'm rich. Uh, go f yourself." I mean, that's what it sounds like to me. Well, he's kind of turned the site into an anti everything. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, there's a lot of uh, discrimination, a lot of hate posts on there that have tripled in the time since he took it over. Not just anti-Semitic posts. And look, we have so much conflict here in the United States that I think we have to make room and leaders need to make room for civil discourse. Can I empathize with the plight of the Israeli people after October 7th? And at the same time, empathize with the plight of the Palestinians and their living conditions and what they've been through and still say what Hamas did is terrible. Yeah, I think I can. We have to have a more nuanced discussion, in other words. Yeah, not much nuanced about about Elon Musk these days. What do you think's happened? Because I mean, again, he 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 remains by a, a fairly wide margin the richest man on the planet, or richest person, I should say, on the planet. Um, and he's had success at some things, and yet the takeover of Twitter seems to have exposed something that I think you don't even fully appreciate unless you've been in a CEO's shoes. Because whatever he's doing to that purchase. I mean, it feels like he's either gaslighting all of us, destroying it on purpose, or completely incompetent. And all three of those are kind of uncomfortable, uncomfortable descriptions. Well, he's a brilliant inventor. And what he created with Tesla is amazing. I've never seen an automobile company do something like that. And what he's done with SpaceX is equally amazing. So we have to give him credit for that. But that doesn't make him qualified to comment on everything going on in the world on Twitter. And it's like his, his own personal site where he can voice his grievances and his anger and his, his, his hatred, if you will, of various groups and fan the flames. Look, we need to be quiet in the flames. That's why civil discourse is so important. We just, and he's kind of lost it. And I think he feels like because he's the richest man and person on the planet, he can get away with doing whatever he wants. And he really can't. In fact, he has to be more careful than other people do because he has such a wide following, such a wide reputation. And Frank, from what I hear, you know, there are a lot of people that have thought about buying electric cars that are holding off on Tesla just because uh, of the character he's shown on Twitter. Now, I wouldn't necessarily say they should do that, but I do think the fact that you're a brilliant inventor doesn't qualify you to run a social media site. Yeah. I mean, it's true. You're right. I mean, he, in many ways, he kind of embodies that CEO as brand, right? And so yeah. a lot of what he builds now, it hasn't necessarily had a detrimental impact just yet on everything, but he is his own brand and he has to, he needs to watch his own brand to some extent as well. Yeah. And he, uh, I think this is his brand. If you look at the way he's dressed in a leather jacket and my wife's a little shocked by that, you know, <laughs> I, I think that's just the brand he wants, the bad boy who can do whatever he wants. But look, his wealth does not give him a right to attack other people. Uh, this is, a t you know, it's very upsetting to me. And, uh, you know, there's enough strain and enough difficulty going on all over this country, all over the world, frankly. And that's why we need people that can calm things down and say mature things. And frankly, bring people together. Let's talk about our differences. We can have differences, but not in the kind of rant he went on. And, uh, and I think... 
you know, he's he's attacking his only source of funds and only money for Twitter coming in from advertising. No one pays money to go on Twitter, except maybe some of these little, uh, what have they had? The blue, the blue, the blue check, check, yeah, the $8 check. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, you know, and I pulled all my advertising about nine, 10 months ago because uh, I didn't want to be associated with advertising on site. Now I do comment on there from time to time. It's a free site and it reaches a lot of people. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, as as a as a, what do you make of of Linda Yaccarino? Because of course he brought in a replacement CEO for himself at X Twitter about six months ago, and and watching and she has some you know, hugely respected, lots of experience. Yeah. Uh, and, and, but watch watching what's been watching her try to spin this one. Someone said watch her try to spin this one was like watching someone sort of spin their arms out of their sockets, right? Because she's just been handed mess after mess after mess. I empathize with her because she has Mission Impossible. Her job is to bring the advertisers back if they left in the first place after a lot of racist posts and fancy uh, homophobic posts all uh, tripled after he took over. And she's trying to bring him back and he, he's just slamming him in the face and, uh, you know, just to make it sure he repeats what he says. And so, uh, yeah, I, I think she's got a very tough job and yeah. I don't think it's going to succeed. You know, would you bring would you go back on if you were running IBM or Coca-Cola? Uh, or or Disney, you know, uh, I wouldn't, you know, there are other places to advertise. It felt like yesterday, despite all the speculation about what's happened at, at, at Twitter X since he took over, it felt like yesterday, though, was, was kind of a tipping point. I know these days it's hard to ever say anything definitive about, you know, people's reputations. Things have a way of changing very quickly. But it felt like yesterday was a bit of a tipping point that after that, I don't expect any of them to. Why would they come back? What's in it for them, right? What do they I mean? They pay to be on these sites. I know it's there's not much out there to replace it at this point in time. But something else will come along. If there's money to be made. If those advertisers are out there they're looking to spend their advertising dollars, someone will figure out a way to do it. Yeah, I use LinkedIn. It's a very yeah. civil site. And I respond to virtually every comment that comes up. And we get into great discussions on this particular topic. Very thoughtful discussion. And there are some people pushing back from the right that think that uh, free speech means you're going to say whatever you want. See, I think for leaders, when you're in a leadership role, freedom of speech is not you, you can say what you can legally say what you want, but you can't say things that are harming other people. You couldn't come to my classroom at Harvard Business School and make those kind of comments. You'd be asked to leave. We'd give you your money back or and ask you to leave because that's not tolerated. In fact, we have very clear ground rules in that. Every corporation I know has ground rules. You couldn't say this in a in a corporate corporation and you know in a C-suite or anywhere else. It's just not acceptable behavior. So he's modeling something that uh, is really encouraging all the right uh, uh, all the wrong responses from people. Yeah. I, I, and sometimes I get the impression um, that he does it on purpose, that this is, as you put, you pointed it out earlier, that this is kind of the brand that he wants. He wants to be seen this way. He wants to be seen as the rule breaker. He doesn't want to be the Steve Jobs. He wants to be something different. And, and, and it's, it's, it feels like it's failing in front of his very eyes. I don't know if you'll ever recognize it. Maybe it's not. Maybe some people, I know people out there, some people embrace his kind of rogue style, but, but yeah. It's 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 a hard one. I mean, sometimes I guess as a CEO, sometimes you can't you can't you can't um, you can't get too obsessed with your own money or power. Well, he is definitely obsessed with his own money or power, and I don't think money gives you power you know, or influence positively. The media loves to play it up, uh, and I do think you know he's a very intelligent, brilliant guy. I mean, we can't forgive him and say, oh, well, he didn't know what he was saying. Of course, he knows exactly what he's saying. And it is the image. You got it just right, Ben. That's the image he wants to convey, the kind of bad boy that can do whatever he wants. And then he thinks he can fly over to Israel 
meet with Benjamin Netanyahu, kind of have a, a bromance, so to speak, and uh, every all is forgiven. You know, and I can tell you, uh, the Jewish people I know in this country, uh, you know, are not forgiving this at all uh, because they know the pain that their friends and relatives in Israel are suffering right now. Does it concern you at all as someone who, who shapes new leaders, leaders coming up, that there will be, I mean, there'll always be people who who want to do things differently. Um, but a lot of talk about sort of authenticity. And I mean, you get the impression that that there will be people who will look up to someone like Elon Musk and think, whoa, I think I'd like to be like that. Yeah, that's the problem. You know, we at leadership roles, we're always role models and we have to be role models constructively for good or for ill. And I think, yeah, it's a terrible thing. You know, it's interesting. Merriam-Webster just came out and said the word of the year is authentic. Mm-hmm. And I've been pushing the idea of authentic leaders as opposed to power-based leaders that dominate other people, that can empower people and lead with values and a sense, deep sense of purpose. I've been doing this for 20 years, Ben, and uh, it's now really taking hold. And so I think when I look across the business world, the nonprofit world, healthcare, uh, I can't say the media or, or elected politicians, even government civil servants, authenticity is the way of the world today and that's what people want and that's the way they're behaving and so this really flies in the face of all that Uh, i think the media sometimes gets carried away because you know a lot of people tune in to this and you know and i've seen that happen in my own posts uh but i think we need role models like that i posted the other day on satya nadella at microsoft after he brilliantly handled the open ai situation we need leaders like that that are very sound and constructive and of course, full disclosure, Microsoft owns uh, LinkedIn, which I told you, I think it's a great site. Yeah. I, and, and I guess this would definitely, I mean, you're you're seeing what will be the next generation of CEOs, right? Which is, and, and they must have values that are different from the ones that that we grew up with, uh, whether it be in the 60s, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. Uh, they're, they're a new breed of leader. And, and I guess part of it, you get a bit of a yin and a yang with that, right? So you get this idea of authenticity, but that also in these days, like I can't imagine uh, I can't imagine an Elon Musk 40 years ago being as public as Elon. I'm sure behind closed doors, they, there were a lot of awful people, but being as public about it as he is. Well, we don't see this. I, we've had 400 CEOs come to our new CEO program at Harvard in groups of 12 each, and we don't see this at all. Right. This kind of behavior, you, you just would never see. I do think that a lot of CEOs are struggling is when do I speak out and when don't I speak out? This is really hard. I'm on the side of saying you represent your company. Uh, yes, it, that you are the brand, like it or not, and you need to take a position on things. Uh, but it needs to be one based on your company's purpose and its values. You don't just comment on everything comes along. And uh, But I think I don't see a lot of Elon Musk or people with that kind of attitude out there. Uh, there, there are people out there, but they aren't in the C-suite. I, I guess I'll go back then to finish with my initial question: was was in your in your view, or what do you think's wrong? Because it seems a bit, I mean, it seems all a bit antisocial, uh, counterproductive, and a bit unhinged, and it's hard to make sense of. It, it is all of the above, and he thinks he can get away with it. And he thinks it's brand enhancing for being the kind of rogue bad boy uh, that gets a lot of coverage for that. And uh, because of his power, because of his wealth, he thinks he can lord it over other people. To me, this is awful. I mean, just the opposite is true. You know, think about all the people working on a Tesla production line. Look at all the people using Twitter just trying to look for a, a sound base of communication. Look at all the young leaders coming up today wanting to know how to lead. This terrible role modeling. That's why I try to talk about positive role models 
And back, by the way, one of them is Bob Iger that he's having a war with. And, uh, you know, who's come back to Disney now and trying to set things right after he inherited a mess after his successor was let go. Or Pettis, yeah, successor. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, Bill, thank you so much. I guess we'll all be watching this because, you know, people love the stories of the stories of sort of geniuses who are troubled and the fall and all those things. We'll see what happens uh, with Elon Musk. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Thank you for talking to me, and I appreciate your great questions here. Very stimulating. This, to me, sounds like a great idea. There is a new three-digit suicide prevention helpline that is launched across Canada. Uh, people having suicidal thoughts or other mental health distress can now call or text, importantly, text 988. It's a three-digit number, so easy to remember. Uh, a network of agencies led by the Centre for Addiction and Mental Health will respond to calls and texts 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Federal Minister of Mental Health and Addictions, Yara Sachs, says people can reach out for help no matter where they live in this country. One message that I want to say to Canadians is that we see you, we hear you, and that you're not alone, that if you are struggling, that there is a low barrier, easy access, warm voice on the other end of the line to get you the help that you need, and that we are there for you. The Federal Minister of Mental Health and Addictions today. Um, she says there are diverse responders uh, staffing the helpline that will be able to provide services in multiple languages, English and French, obviously, but others as well. I mean, the statistics, about 12 people a day uh, die by suicide in this country. and that, That's 4,500 lives each year, according to the Public Health Agency of Canada. And more than 200 people a day attempt suicide. Uh, this is a $158 million project uh, overseen by the Public Health Agency and, of course, led, as I mentioned, by the Centre for Addiction and Mental Health in Toronto. The U.S., by the way, has a national suicide and crisis helpline in place, which also uses that same 988 number. Uh, Al Raimundo contributed to the development of the, of the helpline as a person with lived experience and joins me now. Al, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you so much for having me. This this feels like an important day, and I'll be honest with you. I mean, I knew of, I've obviously over the years interviewed people who've done this kind of work with many different helplines that are out there because there are, but the idea of having a national one seems really important, and you've, you you know it firsthand. Yeah. When I, the couple times in my life when I found myself feeling suicidal, I was trying to access crisis lines and the first time when I was much younger and I was thir uh, around 13 years old, I remember just not having the right words um, to put into something like Google to be able to get the crisis lines. And I remember just feeling so overwhelmed and so much of my energy was just spent on trying to stay here, to stay alive, that trying at the same time to find a crisis center was so hard. And even recently when I was diagnosed uh, with cancer, I remember having the right words this time. You know, I've worked in mental health for 10 years, but when I Googled crisis lines, there were just so many of them and none of them fit what I was going through 100%, but also none of them were completely wrong. And in both of those cases, it was so much easier to do nothing. And what I'm really excited about for 988 is that it's easy to remember, it's easy to find, and it is the right answer. And so when folks like me, have that voice in the back of their head that says, you know, maybe this is worth talking to somebody about, that the process of talking to somebody who knows how to support people who are feeling suicidal is easy, and that I think is just going to make a huge difference. Yeah, I, I read an interview that you've given earlier today, and, and of course, it really stood out to me that, that you encountered 
albeit in different ways, you encounter the same problem as someone young not knowing what the words would be and someone older who knew exactly what the words were but still encountered problems. It says so much, doesn't it? About Because I think we've always felt, oh, there's support out there. But truly finding it and figuring out what was right for you, picking up that phone, sending that text, it's a big step. It's a huge step. And I think, you know, there's so many there's so many ways to get lost on the way there. And I was, I just, this sits with me as somebody who's worked in mental health for 10 years. If I can't figure out the right resource, then what help does other folks have? But now I think what's really awesome about 988 is it's taking all those amazing responders um, who were working at other crisis lines. You know, there's over 30 partners involved in this project and it's, and it's connecting them to that awesome resource with all of that experience, but making the act of connecting to the right person so much easier on folks experiencing thoughts of suicide or other mental health crises. I was, I wanted to ask you when you decided to pick up the phone, um, when you don't, when you don't, because it's hard to find and you, I mean, it must exacerbate the problem in a way that's almost indescribable. If you haven't reached out, if you haven't been able to reach out to someone at a certain point when you first thought of it, um, what happens after that? It must just compound what's already wrong. Every time that, you know, you don't reach out or the longer you wait, the harder it is to, to reach out that first time. Your problems all of a sudden seem so big that note that you don't think people can help you, even though, you know, they're not, People experiencing thoughts of suicide, they're not alone. There are so many um, resources and things out there like 988 to support you, but it can be the longer you wait, the harder it becomes to reach out. And so that's one of the things that's really important to me about 988. No problem's too big or too small. The responders know what you're going through and they're there to help you. You know, they may not solve every single one of your problems, but they're there to help you, to give you hope and tools to get to the next day. And then eventually, and I live this, Every day that you're able to keep going, it does get easier and you do find more and more reasons to keep living. You were approached, I, I gather, to try to for some input on this. I gather there was a lot of input on this, rightly so. Uh, what ultimately did you want to see? What was a perfect 988 for you? A perfect 988 for me is something that's easily accessible because, like I said before, being in that state of crisis, is, it's so hard to find the energy to do something. So what that little voice in the back of your head saying that you're worth it is so quiet and so fleeting that the minute you think, hey, maybe I should talk to someone, that process should be super easy because you may not know you the next day that voice may be gone. So being able to capitalize on it there. And then I think to me, just having folks um, who are connected locally to different communities. So that's one of the cool things when you dial 988, they'll connect you to someone local to you based on your phone number. And so they understand a little bit of what it's like to live in your community. And I think that's really exciting. And, and lastly, I just, to me, I'm just excited to have this additional resource in my pocket, no matter where somebody lives in Canada, no matter what day of the year it is or time of day, that it's always open and there's going to be somebody there on the other end who's willing to listen, to support you and to help you through whatever you're going through. I hadn't thought about texting uh, a much, and then I, I was reading about what about today's announcement and reading different people's reaction to it, and realized that the texting the texting was actually a really big deal, and, and a really important part mm -hmm. of this service was the ability to text in and not just pick up the phone. Yeah, texting has been life-saving for me. Uh, I haven't always 
lived in places where it was safe to take a phone call or where I had support to access things in person. And so being able to text was kind of the only resource that I was able to access at that time. So I'm so glad Canadians get to access that now. And the other thing is that I feel way more comfortable being vulnerable and honest in text than I do on the phone, especially when I'm interacting with someone who's a stranger. So I think this is having this option for folks is going to be amazing. And there's going to be a lot of folks who are going to be able to do things like continue texting their 988 responder when they're on their way to emergency services and, and have somebody kind of in their phone walking alongside them in this journey. And I think that's going to cause so much peace and so much hope, and it's going to be really awesome. Do you know much about the American system? I was aware that it existed, but I didn't know much about it. Has it been a success? I am not super aware of it, but I do. Mm -hmm. From what I've read, I think it has been a a success. I know that in creating 988, we learned a lot from our American partners. Um, It took them about five years to stand stand up their 988 instance. And for us, it took about two years because we were able to leverage a lot of the learnings from the American 988. And so I'm really excited that we get to learn from them and we get to, to start with all of their learnings. And with any new program, you're going to learn how it's working and adapt with time and you're going to be agile. So I'm excited to take those conversations to see how they go and then continue to adapt and learn from there. I guess there, this is a start, right? But I know you're right, you're right there on the front line. So you do see that there are many other things that are still needed, but at least this national line uh, is a beginning, is a, is a good thing to have. Yeah, I'm really excited to have it in the toolkit for myself as somebody who sometimes experiences thoughts of suicide and mental health crises. And it's also really exciting for me as somebody who's in community with so many other people with lived experience to have this as a tool for folks to be able to use, you know, it doesn't replace the need to have local mental health resources, places to access therapy and medication if folks want to, but it's going to be a really exciting tool and it's super easy to access one with some really awesome supporters on the other side. I know, obviously, I mean, if you're in a big city, I believe you're in Vancouver, um, that that those services, linking you to services through 988 can be relatively straightforward. But I suspect there are a lot of Canadians who live a long way from those kinds of services. Do you, know, do you have an idea of how that might work? I guess this is this will be things that they'll figure out. But how might that work for, I mean, this is obviously going to be really valuable for people who live away from the kinds of services you would need. Uh, but I suppose they'll tr- they'll try to link them up with services as close to them as possible. Yeah, and I think this is where a lot of the partner organizations come into play. Like, for example, there's one of the crisis lines that are part of the network is in northern BC. And so they would have a lot of experience supporting folks and recommending places where somebody can take their next step in their mental health journey in the in northern BC. And so I think really relying on the partners and the way that they're handling this right now is why I'm so excited that instead of just making a whole new workforce and doing this all by ourselves that we're relying on the expertise of the of these crisis responders who've been doing this for so long um, to be able to connect them and like you said we we will try some things we will learn and we will continue to adapt with time yeah and and i guess what will you be looking out then i mean this is new right and anytime anything's new there's always a little few bumps in the road uh, what we are you are you still involved with, with it and are they asking people who've been involved in launching it to sort of stay around to see how the first months and and sort of the first year goes 
Yeah, so the Community Member Advisory, which is an advisory of a lot of awesome folks with lived experience, is staying on, and we're going to continue to advise it and continue to work on it uh, and, and continue to improve it. I know that there's a lot of improvements and things that people are excited about launching after we launch this initial pilot. So the work is not done, and it's going to continue to become even more awesome with time. And so I'm excited to stay involved. I think a lot of the other folks who co-designed it from lived experience perspective are also super excited to stay involved and and to start getting some of that data in so we can understand uh, who the first couple conversations are with. Yeah. You know, I I speak to a lot of people. I have to say one of the things about this whole project, listening to you talk about it, is it sounds like it was a real labor of love for you, too. I mean, it was something that that brought you a lot. And I think that's probably and, and, and the others who worked on this as well. And that in of itself is probably really important. To me, I I live my life by the saying of being who I needed when I was younger. And so with my experiences of trying to find the right crisis line and failing, I I knew that 13-year-old me and even 31-year-old me would have loved this, would have loved to use this. And I hope that I continue to experience good mental health. But if if I find myself in crisis again, I would not hesitate to use this. And to any of your listeners, Today, we're thinking that maybe this is a resource that might be helpful for them. I I would say, again, no problem is too small or too big. Text it, call it, call 988, see, how you, see what your experience is. And I really think that anyone who thinks this could help them, anyone who thinks this could help their family, don't hesitate. Just reach out and ha- take that first step in, in kind of investing in yourself because you're worth it. And... I know the brains of folks struggling with mental health can often tell you that you're not worth it or that nobody can help. And I truly believe that you are worth it. And the folks answering the 988 calls and texts can truly help you with whatever you're going through. Right. You raised a really important point there, too, because I think we're all trained to only dial 911 in case of extreme emergency, right? Real emergency. Whereas with 988... You know, I, I think you pointed it out well that that it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be massive. It can be something as long as you think you need the need to reach out, then you can. Yeah, I would say that if it's if you're experiencing something and it's really affecting you, reach out. If you're experiencing something and you're not sure if it's affecting you enough, still reach out. It's not the wrong door. They're not going to turn you away. So reach out, and there's somebody awesome on the other line waiting to chat with you about whatever it is you're going through. Well, Al, I really appreciate your time tonight, and congratulations on uh, seeing this uh, to fruition, so to speak. Thank you so much for having me, and it was awesome chatting with you. Speaking of of, of public health, it was almost exactly two years ago, December of 2021, that New Zealand really kind of uh, took a big step forward uh, when it came to smoking cessation. They announced the strictest smoking ban in history. The country was applauded, obviously, by many for legislating a so-called generational ban on the sale of cigarettes. Um, now, this was introduced under the previous Jacinda Ardern-led government. Of course, she's gone. She quit. Then their, her party lost power. And it would have banned cigarette sales next year to anyone born after 2008. So anyone born after 2008 um, wouldn't have been able to legally buy cigarettes ever in New Zealand. Um, other measures included restricting the number of tobacco retailers, reducing the level of nicotine in cigarettes. Uh, modeling had suggested that those laws could save up to 5,000 lives per year. A reminder, here's the former Associate Minister of Health, Aisha Varal, back in December of uh, 2021. 
We want to make sure young people never start smoking, so we are legislating for a smoke-free generation by making it an offence to sell or supply tobacco products to those aged 14 when the law comes into effect. As they age, they and future generations will never legally be able to purchase tobacco because the truth is there is no safe age to start smoking. Right. So that was supposed to take effect imminently, but it's not. It's gone. The new coalition government in New Zealand pulled the plug on it uh, just last week. It plans to scrap the nation's world-leading smoking ban to fund tax cuts. Now, the country's prime minister says the legislation was also misguided. Uh, here is the new prime minister of New Zealand, Christopher Luxon. We think there's issues around a 36-year-old can smoke, but a 35-year-old can't. Uh, we just think some of that doesn't work. We've seen smoking rates come down across multiple uh, you know, generations of government. We expect that to continue. We'll have strong education campaigns. Right. Um, this was a bold step, right, by a government. And of course, bold steps when it comes to these sorts of things. One of the cruel ironies, and we've spoken about this on the show in the past, is that secretly, the sale of cigarettes still makes governments a lot of money on the front end. It costs them an awful lot of money on the back end in, in healthcare costs. But on the front end, it's a source of revenue, right? And these days, when people are looking at balancing the books and so on, uh, it's unfortunately one of those things that, that just like alcohol and other things that are not necessarily very good for us, um, that the government make an awful lot of money on because of the taxes. Now, New Zealand's laws, people have been calling this a retrograde step, by the way. The critics are incensed by the fact that they would step back on this for, for tax reasons, mainly. Um, New Zealand's laws were believed to inspired Britain in September to announce a similar smoking ban for young people. Uh, apparently, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's position is unchanged at this point, despite New Zealand's reversal. And other Canadian jurisdictions, such as BC, have also been kind of bandying this one about looking at maybe could a generational ban work here. So what now? Uh, Laura Struick is an assistant professor of in the School of Nursing at UBC Okanagan. Uh, she's a Canadian Cancer Society Emerging Scholar and a Michael Smith Foundation Scholar as well. Laura, thank you. Thank you, Ben, for having me. Maybe just take us back uh, a year ago, I guess it was, that New Zealand introduced this groundbreaking policy, uh, a generational smoking ban. What, what was the reaction to it then? Then we could talk about the fact that they've sort of stepped back from it at this point. But it, it's, it, was, it was big news when it happened. Yeah, it really was quite exciting to hear such a bold move being made and created a lot of conversations in, in Canada and I'm sure around the rest of the world around uh, possibly doing that as well in our country. So, um, yeah, it was really quite an exciting thing to see come about. For listeners who may not understand the the logic of a generational smoking ban, essentially what you do is you impose a ban on the sale of cigarettes uh, for anyone born after a certain year, and you and you just keep rolling that right. Like, and, and then it, more and more people are 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 prohibited from buying cigarettes. And I guess the idea at the end of the day is that people have quit smoking. That's correct. At the end of the day, nobody can access cigarettes. Now, now, of course, New Zealand, for, for a couple of reasons, have decided to walk this back. That, that uh, What was your reaction to reading that? Yeah, it was disappointing to see that. And it was disappointing for uh, several reasons. And I'm happy to elaborate on that if, if you would like. Sure. Yes, go ahead. Yeah. Um, well, so there is evidence that indicates the benefits of increasingly more stringent policies like no smoking indoors, uh, no smoking at parks, parks or beaches, no smoking in cars, no smoking at the workplace, for example. And evidence indicates that benefits include reduced exposure to secondhand smoke, a decreased overall prevalence 
Um, and as a result of this, health is inherently improved. And we all know that smoking is the number one cause of disease and death around the world. And so there are these inherent benefits that come along with a ban. Also, I think noteworthy is that there are ultimately decreases in healthcare costs and economic costs related to smoking at large. And I think also it would spares the environment in various ways. I think here in BC, that's particularly relevant. It would save a lot of forest fires that would be uh, occurring in BC. Up to 25% of forest fires are caused by cigarettes. And so a ban really does have significant benefits when you think about that holistic picture. Now, the generational bans, I guess we don't know because we haven't had one in effect that's actually gone, started to work. But are generational bans sort of one of the best practices or are they something relatively new? Because I guess there are other ways to approach uh, trying to get people to quit smoking, right? But a generational ban feels like a feels like a big step. But it's, I suppose in the case of New Zealand, part of it was sort of short-term tax implications that, that made them step back from it. Um, but I guess it's expensive as well if you think about the revenue that the governments make, that all governments make off the sale of something that well, I mean, the, the, you, you, you've pointed at it already that the healthcare costs are enormous, but mm-hmm. the, the upfront uh, revenue gain is big. Yeah, exactly. And I, I also, so my work is in the area of youth health promotion, especially mm-hmm. as it relates to tobacco use. And uh, not surprisingly, I I have been immersed in addressing the issue of vaping. And I I like to focus on that and, and, and think about that context as well when considering a ban. So nicotine users of today, they're vapors. They're vapors, right? Yeah, you're right. Very few young people. That's what's funny about a generational smoking ban is that very few young people actually smoke these Mm -hmm. days. Yes. However, teens who vape are over three times more likely to start smoking later in life. And some statistics are starting to raise concerns in that regard. So, for example, uh, the Tobacco Abuse in Canada report by the University of Waterloo indicated that ever trying a whole cigarette amongst 15 to 19-year-olds remains stable. But when you break it down by age, the older the teen, the higher that percentage goes up. And this is particularly relevant for the most recent years. And so this might indicate that after vaping for a while and not receiving the nicotine hit that maybe they were looking for, uh, they eventually turn to cigarettes because the nicotine from cigarettes is just that much it's 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 harsher and a ban in this context would actually curb this trend towards cigarettes in the younger demographics right so so as something as as an app so maybe those those statistics that we're seeing are are a bit misleading in some ways that it's not down as much as we thought it was there is nothing to do obviously with vaping in these and because the new zealand brought one in that they've now they've now announced they're going to reverse the uk also brought one in a generational smoking ban but nothing about vaping in those No, nothing about vaping. And I think this is uh, something that I would like to bring forward, um, is that we really need to think about nicotine products at large. Governments need to consider nicotine products at large. It's not just a a problem of, of smoking. So, you know, yes, we need to generate a lot of evidence in relation to the harms pertaining to vaping devices, now pertaining to a nicotine pouches that are becoming increasingly more popular. So it makes me, it begs the question, 50 years from now, are we going to be talking about a ban on vapes? And then 50 years from that, are we going to be talking about a ban on nicotine pouches? So I think the government it would, it, it, it's, it's warranted to really think about nicotine products at large and regulating those products, such as nicotine being a prescription 
uh, only type of product, uh, increasing the age of accessing these products to something like 21 years old, really restricting marketing of these products. This all needs to be considered when thinking about When you're thinking about a smoking ban, you need to really think about nicotine products at large. Laura, when you look at the Canadian communities that have been studying, obviously there was a lot of interest around in doing something similar to this. Um, And I suppose just because New Zealand's decided to walk it back because they have a new government in power uh, doesn't necessarily mean Canadian communities can't continue to look at possibly doing this in some way, shape or form. Yeah, that's right. And in fact, BC is quite interested in potentially exploring a a smoking ban of this nature. Some of the things I wanted to talk about the arguments against a ban Mm -hmm. and really kind of unpack that uh, a little bit. So you mentioned the black market. There are also uh, the argument that's widespread in the media about how a ban will hurt small businesses. Yes. Um, I mean, there's always a pushback, right? I mean, there's always, a, but this is a big, this is a big lucrative industry. So there's always going to be a, but yeah, absolutely. The, uh, maybe start with, start with the, with the, with the contraband one, because that one comes up all the time. Yeah, absolutely. So with regards to a, a black market, um, I, I would say that this is a maybe. Uh, yes, I agree. When people are addicted, they'll find a way to satisfy that addiction. And when there's a ban on what they're addicted to, potentially they will there will be a black market created uh, selling potentially more harmful products that aren't regulated however it's actually a narrative that the tobacco industry is really selling so that governments become afraid of a ban and as soon as there's a narrative that the tobacco industry is promoting like this i become immediately suspicious it's very similar to the narrative that e-cigarettes are 95% safer than cigarettes uh, that was an unquantified number that the tobacco industry pushed to sell vaping products. And health organizations, unfortunately, got behind that number as a way to promote vaping as a form of harm reduction. Right. But the number was not credible. And that and, and that will inherently threaten the credibility of organizations that are ultimately trying to protect the right. health and well-being of others. So um, I, I, I do liken this black market argument to that e-cigarettes are 95% safer than cigarettes narrative that the tobacco industry has pushed. And of course, the, the small business one did come up uh, in New Zealand. I mean, these are all ones that have come up in New Zealand, by the way, as, as you probably know, uh, the small yeah. business one came up as well. I mean, I mean that, that there is going to be, I think, what this this latest example in New Zealand is, is an example of, is that when it comes to these sort of very these quite aggressive tactics or aggressive policies that come in that even when they have widespread uh, support from the medical community and others that there's always going to be sort of a push and pull for these things too because they are they are seen as being uh, as being well extreme is the wrong word but they're seen as being sort of they're quite they're very progressive right so there's always be a bit of a pushback you also mentioned you, you don't think the that the whole notion of the small business one is also a bit of a red herring Yeah. So I just, I don't feel bad for businesses that rely on selling a product that kills 50% of its users. Uh, So ultimately I, I, I can't get behind that argument. Mm -hmm. Um, I know there's also the argument that it's an infringement on personal freedom, but again, freedom to what freedom to, to die. Mm -hmm. Um, That's like saying seatbelts are an infringement on personal freedom. So I really think that uh, governments are responsible for protecting citizens. And while it's bold, it is a move that really carries significant potential for protecting a lot of people. Right. And and you and you study, you know, youth specifically, and you think this would have this sort of a move would have an impact on kids if, if cigarettes weren't so available to them, if they weren't sold 
everywhere that you think this would have a that would have a different or at least they weren't allowed to buy them everywhere that you think that would have a, a pretty significant impact on the amount of young people who pick it up even after as you mentioned after sort of vaping first then moving to smoking cigarettes again you think some sort of generational ban would actually work on on the kinds of people that you're looking out for I do, but with some caveats, like the government really needs to consider what types of interventions are in place to support users with cessation. Right. Um, I always say good good policies uh, must be paralleled with good interventions and vice versa. So really for a ban to be successful, there needs to be a funding and, and money directed at ensuring the best of the best supports are available to assist people with quitting. And I think that that is one thing that really needs to be brought to the table when these conversations around a ban are are alive and well. And I also think that there needs to be a consideration around what's driving uptake as well. When we look at the at the youth landscape, mental health, social norms, colonialism, they're all influencing uptake of nicotine products at large. And so we, again, need to ensure that individuals have access to top-notch supports uh, that address these driving factors. Right. Um, and so when I looked at the Canadian landscape uh, through my research, I looked at prevention efforts that exist in Canada. I also explored cessation options that were available to youth, uh, especially as it relates to vaping. And really, it's minimal at best at this point. So if Canada is going to implement a ban on cigarettes, we better have funded and put in place some very comprehensive supports from pharmacological supports through to interventions to support cessation, like I was mentioning. Right. So, so maybe learning from what's going on in other parts of the world isn't such a bad thing after all. Laura, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Many of the women and children have already been free. That was the priority, at least um, uh, being held by Hamas. The release of women and children has been sort of the priority so far. And as part of that, there was an incredible moment on Sunday. There's been lots of incredible moments of hostages being released. Um Specifically, meaning that some of these kids are very young, right? Um, and there was an incredible moment on social media this week when you see three young kids, uh, a 10-year-old girl, her two younger brothers, playing with the family dog at a hospital uh, in near Tel Aviv. And it's a moment of laughter and joy for those kids that seems so typical and so innocent until you remember that the reason you're watching it is because um, they had been held, the three kids, Ofri, Yuval, and Uri, along with their mom, Hagar, had only been released the day before after spending 50 days as hostages in Gaza. Now, uh, brother-in-law and uncle is Aaron Brodach. He now lives in Toronto, and we spoke to him back on November the 3rd, just a little less than a month after um, the four had been last seen during the Hamas, Hamas attack on their kibbutz, their community in southern Israel on October 7th. Obviously, it was a really difficult time for the entire family, including Aaron, who is trying to raise awareness about this. The families, of course, have been pushing very hard to make sure that the hostages are the priority for the Israeli government, that their safe release is the priority. And here's what he said to me back on November the 3rd when we last spoke. It's very, it's very difficult. Um, we're, we're really taking it day by day. Uya is four years old. Every day, his life is in danger. Every, every minute you know, that passes is another minute where you know, his family might be killed. 
That's what he had to say back on November the 3rd. So he was there. He was actually in Israel. He flew back over earlier, actually, before the deal was even announced, before the truce was even announced. He flew back um, to Israel to be with his parents, to be with his brother, uh, as they waited for word as to whether uh, his sister-in-law and his niece his niece and two nephews would indeed be released. Now it didn't happen right away. Uh, they weren't amongst the first, not even the second batch of hostages who were let go. They were among the third. And he was there Sunday when they were finally released from captivity. He's back in Toronto now. And we really wanted to catch up with him just to get, uh, to find out how everyone's doing and to find out what that release, what being there was like uh, Aaron joins us again now. Thank you so much for your time. Welcome back, and so happy that this is good news. Thank you. It's nice to be back. What a whirlwind trip! Uh, I, I didn't know you had gone early, expecting something. You thought maybe something was happening, and you went, decided to go to Israel uh, long before a release was 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 even talked. I mean, it was being talked about, it, but it certainly wasn't confirmed. Yeah, that's right. Um, my my mom uh, called me and she said, uh, I, can you come back uh, and be with us? And I said, of course, um, go to flight uh, within a few days. And then when I arrived, uh, the first thing uh, she told me is I have a hunch that something good is going to happen. Uh, and my next conversation with my dad was, what are we going to do to escalate the the protests because nothing is happening. Um, and so I'm happy she was the one who's correct. <laughs> right. Yeah, because you'd, I mean, you'd, you'd had the letter writing campaign. I mean, the families had been putting significant pressure on the government to make sure that, that their loved ones were, were, were released in this case. Uh, yeah, we did, we did a lot of work. Uh, actually, the, the letter writing campaign, uh, I, I, I joined it, um, but we didn't uh, lead it. Mm-hmm. Um, it was uh, really members of, of the Jewish community um, in Toronto who did that. Um, but yeah, we were um, protesting. Most of our efforts were focused um, in, in Israel on protesting um, and kind of convincing the government there that the number one priority is the hostages. Um, and uh, Eventually, we succeeded. Um, but I think had we not pushed hard, there would still be fighting, and you know, very likely, more hostages would would have been killed. Um, so uh, we succeeded, but it took, I believe, way longer than it should have. Uh, I think this could have ended a lot earlier had uh, the Israeli government tried to pursue a diplomatic approach. Uh, at the beginning. What was it like to get that call? Because I gather you found out quite late at night, I guess it was it was late last week, uh, that this was happening, that in fact there would be releases and that according at least to the uh, the sort of the details of the agreement that women and children would be released first. That would include, of course, your sister-in-law and your uh, your niece and nephews. Yeah, so there there were rumors going on um, when, when I arrived in Israel, like I said, my my first punch was we need to escalate the protests. Uh, it's, it's taking too long. And um, as we were kind of brainstorming, 
we heard a rumor that something is is happening and we said okay we're not going to push too hard um and that rumor got confirmed kind of slowly we we heard more and more about it um but definitely when the the agreement was signed um there was a huge sigh of relief especially for my father it was the first night it was the first full night's sleep he got since everything started um wow. and then we we had to wait a few days until they actually got released uh, there was a there was a list of 13 people every day uh they were released on the third day so we got we had two kind of negative phone calls that you're not on the list um and that of course is you know not it's it's kind of hard news um and you always know that there's a chance that they will not be on the list at all and unfortunately you know m- many well, many of the hostages are not going to be released um at least n- not in the next few days and uh, even some of the kids were not released we know that there's a 10 month old baby who had either been killed or is still uh you know hostage right. there so you know, at the end yeah. we were very lucky um that we got we got them out and i'm hoping that they continue releasing uh the rest of the hostages i can't even imagine the wait hoping that hoping that they'll be on that list you know it was funny i saw there were some images of course they were trying to be very protective of in part of of, of releasing too many images of people being released but there were some images of your family and and the reunion at the hospital i gather in uh near tel aviv and 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 the reunion with the family dog and it all looks so it all looks so normal and and i know that from someone sitting far far away and yet i can't imagine what it was going through everyone's minds including yours as that reunion was happening yeah i mean it's you know when when we saw them for the first time they looked shocking they were wearing the same clothes that they'd worn for two months uh they were very thin um but they were communicating we could you know we they were functioning um and the next day i brought the dog to the hospital right and you know seeing seeing them smiling and just playing with the dog and kind of seeming normal it's it's great and you know it's it's a big piece to see that because we don't know what their mental situation is but it's good to see that it's it's, it's in a fairly it's in fairly good condition they're they're functioning they're smiling the kids um so yeah it's great yeah i, I guess at this point it's, it's too early to be talking about what happened over those two months but just the relief that you must have felt uh, in seeing them at first, even though they did, as you mentioned, they were still incredible to think they were still wearing the same clothes they've been wearing on that day, right? And just the memories of, I mean, all of it is so much to absorb for for your sister-in-law, of course, uh, but for your your niece and your niece and nephews too are still very young. Yeah, it's uh, you know my my sister-in-law Hagal, um, she she endured a lot during that time. It's just amazing how she managed to keep. Uh, the family, everyone, pretty pretty much sane through the process. Um, you know, keeping some sense of normalcy uh, throughout. Um, hopefully, her older daughter, my niece, uh, is ten years old and had been to Toronto uh, over the summer, helped a lot um, in sort of keeping keeping everything normal and taking care of the kids. Um, 
and they were very lucky to get out of it without any serious injuries uh, to their bodies and hopefully nothing major to their side. But, I mean, that remains to be seen. Uh, Aaron, I was surprised that you and your brother went to see the kibbutz, right, and and where they used to live. And I was thinking about that, reading that article. Um, that that, and we talked about this the last time we spoke. That the release of them being safe and sound is is by far the greatest news one could hear. But then you start thinking about what now, because what they called home is gone. That, that's right. Um, so their their house is actually intact, but the, the kibbutz is a lot of houses are destroyed. Um, you know, and, and worse than that, uh, a lot of lives were destroyed. Um, so the, the kibbutz itself is a very close uh, community. My brother's house was literally open all the time. People would just walk in, grab a beer, sit uh, outside on the porch. Um, and that's kind of the lifestyle they had, being, being very close with everyone. And uh, a lot of people died. It's It's going to be very, very difficult to recover for the kibbutz and very unclear for them if they will ever be able to come back home. Definitely, they will not come back to the same environment that they were in. Uh, and right now, they're refugees, um, you know, living in in a rented uh, house uh, somewhere else. Yeah. I, I I suspect that a lot has been put in place for the kids, for your sister-in-law, I mean, for the whole family to try to help them out with this psychologically, because I, I don't think we spoke to someone last week who had been a hostage in Iran for 444 days. And he talked about just how, how difficult, I mean, first of all, how dire the experience was, but how difficult the after, the after was after being released. It was really tough. Uh, and of course he was a growing man, but it's really, really, he spoke of it, but as being an incredibly tough time, that time, not maybe right now, but just in the next little while. Yeah, so um, they are being uh, very well supported by the government. They initially were uh, taken to a hospital. There was a a new wing at Schneider Children's Hospital that was set up for the hostages that were released. They received uh, absolutely the best medical treatment uh, that exists. Many of the doctors at the kids' hospital were actually fellows at SickKids in Toronto. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're really the best doctors um, and you know, the best psychologists, all, all the best care that can be provided. But n- no psychologists have ever treated people who had been through a situation like that. This is you know, extreme and we, we, we don't know um, how how they're going to cope in the next little while. We're crossing our fingers that there aren't any or there are very few deep emotional scars um, that will you know, prevent them from having a normal life. Uh, yeah, we're yeah. keeping our fingers crossed and it is it is going to be a journey. Thank you so much for 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 taking for for sharing your time and and my thoughts. I mean, it's, it's so great to hear that your family are safe and sound, and and our our thoughts are with them for everything that comes from here. But it is fantastic news after speaking to you a few weeks ago to know that they're okay tonight. Thank you very much, and we still have uh, more work to do to get the other hostages released. <laughs>
You may not know the Pogues or even Shane McGowan, their lead singer, but you might recognize that song, Fairy Tale of New York, because it's become one of those very, very um, surprising Christmas classics, right? It's now one of those songs associated with Christmas, even though at the time it was a Christmas song. But if you listen to the lyrics, it's uh, it's not rocking around the Christmas tree, that's for sure. It must have been back in 1985 that my dad, always interested in listening to the next cool thing that was out there musically, brought home an album by an Irish band called The Pogues. Elvis Costello had produced it, so it came with some pretty good pedigree right out of the gate. Uh, he played it a lot. Now, I'd heard traditional Irish music before, um, even at that age, from bands like The Chieftains that I really liked, and closer to home bands like The Irish Rovers. There were many. And that was sort of my you know, my impression, the kind of stuff you, the sort of traditional music you'd hear at an Irish pub. But this was different. The Pogues were different. They were, it was, it was just at a different, it had a different feel to it. It was emotionally really charged. I mean, the music's always good, but this was about, you know, these were folk tunes about Irish life, but there was just, there was a bit of punk in there. There was a bit of punk flavor in there. And like all memorable bands, the Pogues had an unforgettable frontman by the name of Shane McGowan. Now he became sort of a figure of fun in the British press and the media, mainly because he had, a, you know, he was often drunk uh, on stage in interviews at the time. Um, you know, his outrageous drinking, his terrible teeth. Um, he was often character characterized, um, caricaturized. But you know, behind that, it kind of belied the fact that he was an incredible songwriter and storyteller. And the reason for their success was in part because the band themselves, and McGowan in particular, were so talented. Um, they would know massive critical and substantial commercial success in the mid to late 1980s, including with their best-known song, Fairy Tale of New York, which we were just talking about, a duet between Shane McGowan and the late Christy McCall. Uh, his substance abuse, though, and erratic behavior got him booted from the band in the early 90s. He would record again with a band called The Popes and even reunite with The Pogues. Um, but that lightning in a bottle they captured in the early days was never quite the same. Here he is. Here is Shane McGowan talking about his reputation and his abilities. No, see, I mean, you write some of the best songs about, right? And yet everyone likes to think there's just one side to your character, which is the, you know, hard living or wild living, whatever. But first and foremost, you are a great songwriter. Would you agree with that? More than all this other nonsense that's always written about you, yeah? Yeah, I, mean, I don't like to boast. You know, yeah. I mean, I yes, I think I've written a lot of good songs. Yeah, Shane McGowan there. There's been an incredible number of tributes today. Kiefer Sutherland tells this incredible story about meeting him for the first time and getting into a fight in a bar. And then McGowan coming up to him after and asking if he can if he can stay with him at his hotel because he has nowhere to go. And he does. And he writes him this beautiful note the next day. Bruce Springsteen is a huge fan. He said he'd be singing Shane McGowan songs in 100 years. Um, his health was always talked about. People didn't think he would make it to 30, let alone 65. But he did indeed pass away today at the age of 65. His wife, the Irish author, Victoria Mary Clark, announced his death this morning. McGowan was actually born in Kent in England, but spent much of his and spent much of his early years. He lived in Ireland for a bit, but spent much of his early years living in England as well. Uh, I mentioned the Kiefer Sullivan story. Those are the, some of just some of the many that are out there tonight. Joining me now is music journalist and author Annie Zaleski. If you're looking for the best of Shane McGowan, I highly recommend her article today in The Guardian, which looks at his 10 greatest tracks. Her latest book is called This Is Christmas, Song by Song. The stories behind 100 holiday hits, including, of course, Fairy Tale of New York, uh, sung by Shane McGowan and Christy McCall. And Annie joins me now. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you for having me. 
I, I read an interesting thing today. You know, I, I think even back in the '80s, people had predicted his demise for years and years and years and years, and he just he just kept on going. But it, it's a huge loss. He was he was one of a kind. He really was. And, you know, when you think about um, he's he's the kind of musician that they just they sort of don't make anymore. I mean, they broke the mold anyway when he was born, but especially Shane McGowan. Yeah, he is the unlikeliest. I mean, the first time I laid eyes on him, he's sort of this sort of, uh, you know, vocal, you know, bad teeth, swearing, usually intoxicated in his early days. But wow, he could write songs. I mean, there was there was a huge amount of talent there because he wouldn't have been able to get away with it uh, just by being sort of a rowdy, right? That's exactly it. And I think that's what part of the uh, charm, I think, of him. And I think why people really you know, gravitated toward, toward him is that, you know, he did seem kind of a mess on stage, but he was singing these beautiful lyrics that he actually wrote and, you know, from his own life and things that he also dreamt up and formed by his upbringing and informed by things he saw. Like he was a really observant lyricist as well. Yeah. It was interesting that he had the start that so many of of his generation would, which he sort of was in a rockabilly punk band. I'm picturing like the Stray Cats or something along those lines. And then he kind of found his way because he was born in the UK. I think he spent some time in uh, Ireland as a child, but he was spent a lot of his time in and around London. And then he kind of rediscovered the his Irish roots and kind of found a way to meld them, which was not new, but something about the way they did it was new. No, absolutely. You know, he was really influenced by The Clash, obviously, you know, Joe Strummer. And, you know, Joe Strummer was also known as a really intelligent musician, um, as was Shane. But they kind of fused it with the the Irish, traditional Irish music and uh, that whole line of really elegant wordsmiths. And but also energy. I mean, that's the whole thing is that he kind of had that that really that that old school like the, the folk activism too, and on that as well. You know, people yeah. forget sometimes that, you know, especially early on, folk music was extremely political. So they kind of had that element. They had the punk element. They had the traditional Irish element. It was, and they had a great band. I mean, they were kind of ramshackle. You know, they got on stage, you never know what was going to happen. And so there was kind of, there all these little elements sort of fused together in a really unique way. Yeah. And they were fantastic live, which helps, of course. I mean, at a time when live music uh, was still a huge deal, uh, it still is today. But then when, it, you know, that was kind of make or break when it came to moving records, uh, they were a fantastic band live. Absolutely. And, you know, there was that element, I think, that people, you know, sometimes went to their shows because they weren't quite sure what was going to happen. But you would always got a good you know, a good show because at the end of the day, they were musicians. They loved playing live and they were really giving their all on stage. You know, that was the one thing that Shane, I think, said once that, you know, he, he was bummed that their debut record didn't really capture that thundering sound they had live because it was just so dynamic. It was kind of almost hard to commit to tape in a way. Yeah. The other thing that was interesting, and I didn't know this because at the time I always I, I didn't know a lot about him. But there, there was no Wikipedia at the time. Right. Uh, so I, I always imagined they were an Irish band. But then if you look at his the songs that were written, a lot of them are about the expat experience. It's about being Irish, part of the Irish community growing up in, in Britain, for instance, or in America. I mean, a lot of it was not just about Ireland. It was about the Irish experience outside of Ireland, of which, of course, there are many, 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 many stories, considering how many uh, expats such as my family are out there. It was sort of the intimacy of, of, of Shane McGowan's songs that was interesting. The stories about so A Rainy Night in Soho and Fairy Tale of New York, they were very, into, they were tales and they were intimate tales that could be somewhat political, but also very much just stories in the in the finest sense of the word. 
Well, that's it. You know, you, you think about it's like if you went down to your neighborhood pub, he wrote about these characters that maybe you'd meet there. All those, you know, very interesting, unique characters that you would only find maybe, um, you know, who maybe had been to, going to the bar for decades, for example. And so, you know, he wrote about that, but he wrote about them with humanity. And I think that's what really stood out to me just reading that is that there was just so much there was there was almost a sweetness to the songs that he was writing. You know, he wasn't casting judgment on, you know, a lot of these really terrible characters, yeah. you know, he was kind of like, you know, they owned their terribleness, you know, they owned their, their drug problems, you know, the fairy tale of New York, for example, but there, there was still kind of an optimism too. Like, you know, maybe someday will be better and maybe the afterlife will be better. Who knows? And yeah. so they're very complicated. I mean, that's the whole thing is reading them. You know, it's, it's, you could sit there and treat them like you were, you know, diagramming and analyzing any of the great poets just because there is so much going on there and his songs work on many, many different levels. They weren't just drinking songs. They weren't just songs about, you know, people having a hard time. There was a lot, lot, a lot going on. Yeah. Although in his case, I guess one of the problems is his addictions, uh, yeah. certainly his drinking, really got in the way because they had that incredible run from about 83, 84 up until about 88, 89. And then it really, I mean, he was really unable for a long time to be the artist that perhaps, and maybe it was part of his gift, but uh, he, it felt like he had sabotaged part of what could have been to some extent. It's it's so true. And it, it's very sad, you know, when you look at it, because you're right, he had some drug problems as well. And, you know, since he's passed, there's been all these stories coming out that are just like, you, you can't believe that he made it to the age he did just because they were just so out of control stories. And you're right that it did. Fi finally, he had to part ways with the Pogues because if he was just not working anymore. You know, he was being erratic at shows. He wasn't showing up for shows. And, um, and, and it's sad. And I think, you know, 30, you know, now I think, we have a little bit more perspective and we're able to have maybe a little bit more sympathy for figures like him who, you know, obviously, uh, you know, are, are have have addiction problems and are, are dealing with that. Um, but at the time, like it was just, you know, people didn't quite know what to sort of deal with him. And it is sad. And I think because he did create so much art and create so much good art for so long, he could kind of manage everything. And then I think it just got to a point where everything had just sort of gone over the edge and it just didn't work. Yeah, it's strange that we also lost Sinead O'Connor this year, who in a very different way was also someone who was misunderstood and, and you know, also a, you know, an Irish singer of incredible fame in that sort of heady time for Ireland and music. But Shane McGowan and, and Sinead O'Connor, who recorded together a few times, made some really nice stuff. It's, it's funny to have lost them both the same year because they occupied something of the same space. And I don't mean that to be disrespectful to any, either of them, but they occupied somewhat of the same space. They really did. I mean, both of them were, first off, very iconoclastic. You know, both of them followed their own muse. They knew what they wanted their music to sound like. They knew what they wanted their careers to be. And they followed that. And to their detriment, you know, obviously Sinead decided what she was going to do. And, you know, like the commercial you know, success didn't necessarily follow and she could have gone a different direction, but they both made interesting art, I think. And you're right that they were friends and, you know, their, their song they did together, Haunted, is just beautiful. It's just mm -hmm. really, you almost think that they wouldn't work together because Shane's voice is just so gravelly and he's so a little bit unsteady yeah. and her voice is so powerful, but, you know, it, it worked in somehow. It's almost like they kind of balanced out their sides and brought out a tenderness out of each other, maybe, but it's, it's, it's just really lovely. Annie, you, you kind of wrote down for The Guardian, it's a great article, his sort of their 10 classic songs. And there's some incredible ones in there. But let's start with Fairy Tale of New York, because it is, I, you still hear it all the time, especially in the UK, but it's become this song. And the first time I heard it, I, ne I mean, it has a Christmas vibe to it, but it is, the, 
lyrically, it's the least likely of Christmas songs. You know, it's very true. It's one of those songs that has become a Christmas song, like, you know, kind of like Joni Mitchell's River. That's not explicitly about Christmas, but it mentions Christmas. So it kind of slides in. And yeah, because it's it's basically, you know, Shane and Kirstie McCall are playing the characters of, you know, McGowan's a drunk. Kirstie McCall's a troubled drug user. And they're basically in the drunk tank and they're trying to kind of navigate their relationship, which, yeah, is not necessarily your typical Christmas fair. Um, but what I really love about this song is that, you know, they they mention a line about, you know, the bells that are ringing out on Christmas Day. Right. And there's something really beautiful about that. Like there's something, you know, almost the end of the year, you know, you know, maybe next year will be better. And there is a little bit sort of that rebirth, I guess, in that yeah. as well. You know, it's one of those songs that you can kind of celebrate, but then you can also, you know, it's a cautionary tale, but it's also a celebratory tale. It's interesting how it, it coexists with sort of on the British charts, at least year in, year out, it coexists with Wham's Last Christmas and Mariah Carey's All I Want is All I Want for Christmas and and and, and Slade's, you know, Slade's songs and so on. It's amazing that it exists. Well, how did do, do, I mean, you looked into it. Do, do, do you have an idea of how it came about in terms of just the, the song itself? Yeah, it's funny, like like many Christmas songs, like many Pogue songs, it has a little bit of a kind of a complicated genesis. Uh, when I kind of did my research, I discovered that the origins kind of differ depending on which member of the Pogues you asked. There was a really great article on the Irish Times about it, and they said either the manager suggested they cover a Christmas tune by the band or that Elvis Costello challenged McGowan to write a Christmas song. And, who, and so I guess backing up, Elvis Costello produced the Pogues 1985 LP, Rum, Sodomy and the Lash, which right. is, you know, considered their best LP. And I guess he bet McGowan that he couldn't pen a Christmas duet to sing with uh, Kate O'Rourke, their bassist at the time. So McGowan, I think, was never one to back off from a bet. But then uh, their banjo player, Jem Finer, um, also had ideas for the song. You know, I guess he had an initial idea starring a sailor who was having a rough holiday. I guess his wife talked him out of that angle. But Kate Rorden had actually departed the Pogues by the time they sort of got around to actually recording it. And they ended up recording, they were recording with Steve Lillywhite, who happened to be married to Kirstie McCall at the time. And so that's how she kind of ended up on the song. So it's one of those songs that is, it kind of came together over a couple of years and it went through some iterations before they settled on what it became. Yeah. I, I, and, and what a song. And we lost Kristen McCall very young as well. So, yeah, un- unfortunately. So that song, I think there was a lot of uh, a lot of respect for her again, as that song has come up as it does year after year. There were some other ones. I mean, Dirty Old Town was the one that I remember the best because that when my dad brought home that vinyl of Rum Sodomy and the Lash and put it on, I think Dirty Old Town's on, if I remember correctly, Dirty Old Town's on that, on that album. Uh, but that's the song of theirs that I remember vividly because it was just unlike... And it, it was his voice. It was just unlike, and, and what he was talking about was unlike anything I had heard before. And I'd heard the Chieftains and, you know, the Irish Rovers, and there were bands out there that played Irish music. I just never heard anything like that. And that's what's so interesting. This is kind of the aspect of the Pogues that, you know, one of the reasons it makes them really unique is that, you know, they put a modern spin, kind of a, you know, a punk cool spin on a lot of, you know, traditional music. And so uh, Dirty Old Town was written by Ewan McCall, um, the folk icon. Mm-hmm. And it's basically kind of an anti-capitalism anthem. You know, they talk about you're finding love in a place that's kind of polluted and full of industry, uh, but that the narrator wants to destroy it. That, that mix of sort of optimism and then destruction that's always in there, those those kind of two opposing forces. And you're right, his his vocals on here are just great. You know, it's he has moral integrity, I think. He is very, um, you know, which suits really the song's vibe. Yeah, because a lot of people, when they heard those records for the first time, thought, this guy can't sing. Like, he can't carry a tune, <laughs> right. right? 
<laughs> which was part which was part of it. Do you have a favorite? Oh gosh, you know, I I have to admit, I mean Fairy Tale of New York obviously, mm-hmm. but I really do love Boys from the County Hell, which is oh, you know, a good one. from their first record. You know, can he talked about oh our first record didn't really capture what we were all about. But I love how ramshackle it is. You know, you you hear this song and it really sort of captures just kind of the runaway train, energetic, you know, aspect of their live show. And so I've always really appreciated that. Yeah, you're right. I mean, he's when, what you said right off the top kind of encapsulates it. They he was no, by no means a cookie cutter musician, and and, and not that there are that many, but uh, he was 100% the real McCoy. And it feels like we just you just can't be that anymore. It's you, you know, there's too much attention on on artists now, and too much scrutiny, and you just can't be as as sort of unwieldy as he was at his prime in his prime. Absolutely. And, you know, and he was he was allowed to make mistakes and he did make mistakes and he would own up to him. You know, he was very deeply imperfect and he'd be the first one to tell you that. Um, and I think there's people relate to that, I think, too, you know, because, you know, it reminds us of our own flaws and our own imperfections. But yet he was beloved anyway. And there's there's something kind of beautiful about that. Yeah. I forgot to mention he was born on Christmas Day. So he obviously had to have a Christmas <laughs> one Christmas song on him. You know. Absolutely. And so that's I mean, I think that there's a probably going to be a campaign in the UK um, because number one songs are always the Christmas. Number one is a big tradition in the UK. And I have to think now everyone's going to try to get the song Fairy Tale of New York this year, just in his, his honor and in then Kirsty's honor as well. Oh, I think you're absolutely right. Annie, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. 